Good morning, everybody. Uh, we are Andrew and Gabriella Frizzell. Um, we uh, have been coming to Left Chapel Hill, well, we came separately first, and I guess about, what, two and a half years ago now, um, we sort of separately found this as our, our church home and really fell in love with it. And then, you know, actually really only a couple months after we started coming to this church, uh, we were both at the story, uh, R.I.P. McAllister's, this is back when it was there, and, uh, and, and we met there and then uh, fell in love, and we, uh, really this church has been a part of our whole, our whole relationship, and Matt married us uh, a little over a year ago, and so this church is, is really important to us, and we're just, we're really happy to be here, so um, we're going to be reading from Exodus this morning. The best plug for Bible study I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Continue with the script. We actually met at a bar, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) We tell everybody. (laughs) So today we'll be reading from Exodus, uh, starting uh, verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. (laughs) Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. (laughs) So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is a brutal and tragic and gut-wrenching chapter of Scripture right here. Um, We're familiar with this story. We know this part of the story, and yet we often keep it enough at a distance from our hearts um, that we don't let it bother us. But when we pause long enough to read it and to take it in, and to actually contemplate the reality of what's happening in this story, it is utterly tragic and heartbreaking to think about. The people of God, God's people, God's family, and to be treated in such a brutal way. Today what we're we're going to do is we're going to try to look at this chapter and, and this tragic chapter here at the beginning of the book of Exodus that sets up uh, where this story is heading, that gives context for where this story is heading. And we're going to try to answer two questions. Number one, how does something like this happen? Oppression like this. 
so brutal, so blatant, so calculated and strategic? How does oppression like this happen? And number two, how does God respond? How does God respond? Because that's the beauty on the other side of this devastating part of the story. Jesus, help us today as we dive into your word and as we see you even emerging in this part of scripture, in this difficult passage, we can see even here, we can see you emerging. We can see your grace, your truth, your reality coming at us off of the page here. Help us as we wrestle through it. Speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, So reminding where we started uh, last week, we're going to be throughout the summer in this book of Exodus. We're going to be following the story together. And we need to be reminded that the book of Exodus isn't just the beginning of a brand new story. It's the continuation of what has happened before. We're going to see a little bit more of that this week. And so it's part of a it's the second book in a collection of five books that are viewed as being a complete story together, all right? And and the Hebrew people, the Jewish people understood that in their mindset as they studied this, as they learned this, um, this being one of the central stories of who they are as a people, they know that this is a part of a much larger story. So Exodus is the second book uh, in a collection of five books, often called the Pentateuch, Pena meaning five, uh, or the books of Moses, or uh, often referred to as the Torah. And so Exodus is uh, the continuation of what has already happened, as, as we talked about uh, last week. But the interesting thing here, and one of the first things I recognize of how oppression like this, so brutal, so strategic, so calculated, can actually happen is that Pharaoh in this story, the the new king of Egypt that comes into power, he does not understand that he is a part of a larger story. All right, that's the first thing that I notice about this, is that he's lost sight of history. He's lost a grasp of history, and especially his place in history. And he gets to this place where he sees himself as the center of the story. It says, a new king came into power who did not know Joseph. Who did not know Joseph. As you read back through the book of Genesis that comes before Exodus, the the part before this story, how does this king of Egypt not know Joseph? How does the king of Egypt not understand Joseph's role in the story of the people of Egypt? God uses Joseph to save the people of Egypt from a famine that would have wiped them out. Not only does he save Egypt through that, but he uses Joseph and the divine wisdom that he gives to Joseph to save the entire region because he gets Egypt prepared for this famine. And they're able to to go through the famine and have abundance and and have uh, more than what they need so that the others can come around them and can have what they need as well. So how does this person forget Joseph? He's lost his place in the story. He has no grasp of history anymore or his place in it. His view of the world, the, the frame through which he's seeing the world, the frame has started to shrink and shrink 
and shrink until he is the one that's taking up all of the space in the frame. That's how he's viewing the world. He sees himself at the center of the story. I love history. Uh, I nerd out on history way too much, all right? And uh, Sarah is probably shaking her head back there right now, okay? But I, just, I nerd out on this, all right? I collect books on history, and, and it's just like I, I have a problem, okay? I confess that. I don't claim to be a historian, but one thing I know for sure about history, one thing I know for sure, we aren't the center of it. We are not the center of it. The moment that we live in, the place that we live in, our own personal lives, we are not the center of human history. We just are not. We just are not. We live in an incredible time. We live in an incredible place. We aren't the center of it. We are not. I'm not sure what your role in the grand story that God is writing is. I'm not sure what your exact role is in God's grand story, but I know exactly what it is not. And it's not for you to be the center of it. And anytime our frame through which we view the world shrinks so much that all we can see is ourselves, we are setting ourselves up for trouble. This is actually how oppression begins. This is how oppression begins. Look at it throughout the history of the world. And it's mind-blowing how people can do this to other human beings. But here's how it starts. One group of people sees themselves as the center of the story. One group of people sees themselves as the center of the story. And listen, when you put yourself at the center, then just by the nature of it, you have put others on the margins. When you put yourself at the center, you put others at the margins. And that is how oppression begins. And this is what what happens with Pharaoh. He forgets the story. He forgets Joseph's role in it. He forgets the way that Joseph's descendants have played a role in rescuing his empire. And he begins to draw lines and he begins to divide people up because he sees himself as the center. The next thing that happens is this. He becomes afraid. Beware of a of a fearful leader. He becomes afraid. And this is where it really begins to turn. The most powerful leader in the world at this time, surrounded by wealth, surrounded by glory, treated as if he is divine, and yet he becomes afraid. He becomes afraid. He sees that the people are continuing to grow. The the Hebrew people, the Jewish people are continuing to grow in numbers and influence. And he fears that they are going to band together, that they are going to rise up against him and overthrow him. And he will lose his power. And that's his greatest fear. His greatest fear is losing power. So in order to make sure that he doesn't lose power, he refuses to share power and he concentrates all of the power around himself. And he uses his power to take away the power of others. He uses his power to take away the power of others. And oppression is set into motion he will not share his power but he's more than happy to share his fear and there's more than enough fear 
to go around. He's driven by this fear of losing his power. And so he inflicts fear on the people around him. Here's what we see. In oppressive systems, it seems that the only thing that is distributed equally is fear. The only thing that gets distributed equally is fear. And when the leaders in power are afraid of the people, they will have to make the people afraid of each other. And that's what Pharaoh does. He begins to draw lines. And he begins to divide the people up. And these people who have lived together as neighbors now become enemies. And the power dynamic has shifted. He uses his power to take away the power of others. He uses his power to divide the people against each other. And oppression is set into motion. This is the anatomy of oppression. Fear drives the misuse of power. That's how it starts. That's how it begins. The anatomy of oppression is that fear drives the misuse of of power. On the other hand, the anatomy of deliverance is perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. That's what scripture says. It's what we just sang together moments ago. Perfect love drives out fear. Fear is still one of the enemies, one of the greatest weapons that our enemy uses against us. It's how it began. It's how it began in the garden. The enemy begins to plant these seeds of doubt and fear. Did God really say this? Can you really trust God in what he said? Do you really think he wants the best for you? And he begins to plant these seeds of fear in our lives and he continues to do it today and he's doing it to all of us. He plants these seeds of fear in us and he makes us ask, can we really trust him with our future? Can we really trust him with this scenario that I'm in? Can we really trust him to provide everything that we need? And he begins to plant those seeds of doubt. And he's trying to drive a wedge between us and God. But the next thing that he does is he takes it beyond that. And he tries to drive a wedge between us and each other. And he does this in the garden as well. And he continues to do it to this day. And he uses fear as a weapon to divide us against each other. But perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. We see in this passage that even as Pharaoh pours out his brutality on these people, Yahweh is pouring out his blessing. On the people. The language here is striking. The language that's used to describe how the people are growing, it uses the language and the words of increase and fruitfulness and filling the land. Increase and fruitfulness and filling the land. And the interesting thing about that is it tells us once again that Exodus isn't the beginning of the story and it sparks memory of what God has already been saying to the people uh, in the book of Genesis because God repeats that same promise multiple times throughout the book of Genesis. It's the same language. It's the same wording. 
that he uses. He gives that promise to Adam and to Eve. He gives that promise to Noah. He gives that promise to Abraham. He gives that promise to Isaac. And he gives that same promise to Jacob. And now we see it playing out here in the book of Exodus. And when is it happening? Even under the oppression of the Egyptian empire. Even under oppression, God continues to keep his promises. And even under oppression, God is still hearing their prayers. He's still keeping his promises and he's still hearing their prayers. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this oppression, God's promises are still being fulfilled for the people. Increase, fruitfulness, filling the land. Everything that he promised in Genesis is happening here in Exodus. I already said that um, the, the, the nerdy history thing, all right? And uh, one of my favorite figures from history is, is Bobby Kennedy. And uh, this year, uh, this week, actually marked uh, 50 years since the assassination of Bobby Kennedy when he was running for president in 1968. Bobby Kennedy is a very interesting figure to me because when I look at his life, it seems like when he was a young boy, he had this kind of tenderness about him. And it was this kind of sweet kind of tenderness. But in the family that he was raised in, not only was that not encouraged, but his father openly mocked him for it. And basically told him there's no place for that in this family. That's why you're the runt of the family and why your brothers are going to be more successful than you. And so he grew up with that. And so this sense that this tenderness is a bad thing. And so he suppressed that. And instead, to, to earn that respect and love of his father, he made himself into this tough guy kind of image. All right. And so then through, the, through his young career, he gets this reputation for being this tough guy. And especially in the service of his brother, Jack, President John F. Kennedy. He becomes his go-to like bulldog, all right? And, and, and gets things done for him no matter what it takes. And so he takes on that persona of this tough guy. But then tragedy strikes when his brother is assassinated. He goes into a deep depression, of course. And in the midst of that, something happens to him where he reconnects to this tenderness that he had as a child. And so what we see of his life after doesn't seem to match up with what we have seen before. What we see after is this person, even though he was raised in incredible wealth, and even though he had ascended to this place of power so much that people referred to him as his brother's co-president, right, and said that he was like the second most powerful person in the country because he had so much influence over the president. So this person of wealth and this person of power and yet when we talk about his legacy, what we remember is not his wealth and his power, but we remember that he advocated for the poor and the weak. How does that happen? How does a person shift like that? I think it's because he reconnected with this tenderness in his heart because of the pain that he experienced through his brother's death. He experienced this tragedy and it opened his eyes to see the pain that other people are going through. And it awakened in him this empathy for the pain that others are experiencing. And so he gives the rest of his life up until his assassination 
fighting for the poor, fighting for the weak. And that's the legacy that we remember about him. It's this empathy. It's this ability to share in the pain of another person. He's experienced pain so he can relate to the pain of others. He becomes a champion for minorities because of that. I think in that we learn this lesson that before we can heal the pain of another person, we first have to learn how to share it. Before we can heal pain, first we have to learn how to share it. And we see that that's what God is doing here in the book of Exodus. He's not distant from the pain and the oppression that these people are feeling. Instead, this God of all power, this God of all glory, this God of all might does not relate to the Pharaoh of power and glory and might. Instead, he relates to the slave, to the oppressed, to the mothers and fathers whose children are being murdered brutally. It's a God of empathy. And he shares in their pain. And out of that, he responds with deliverance. He begins to set into motion deliverance. If the anatomy of oppression is fear that drives the misuse of power, the anatomy of deliverance is perfect love that drives out fear. And this is what God sets into motion here. How does he do it? By going right at the fear that Pharaoh is creating for the Hebrew people and countering it with perfect love. He strikes right at the fear and he begins to systematically unravel Pharaoh's strategy and plan right before his eyes in this creative way. Pharaoh, in his brutality, narrows in on the people after he's divided them against each other and after he's created this class and he's made one the powerful and one the weak. And after he's created this entire class of slaves, it's not enough to make them slaves. Then he goes even more after the vulnerable and focuses even more on the vulnerable and goes to the babies who are being killed and sets out to wipe them out before they even have a chance to begin. And this is what he's doing. And he's, he's targeting them and he's targeting the boys specifically. Why? Because in his mindset and in the way that he sees the world, he sees these boys as the future men who will become the warriors and the leaders who are a threat to his power. But God in his brilliance, I love this. I love how brilliant this is. Pharaoh isn't afraid of the women. Because he doesn't think, he doesn't think that the little girls are going to grow up to become the warriors and the leaders. And yet it's the women in this story who at every turn outwit him. Who at every turn look at his fear and they answer it with courage. Who at every turn look at his oppression and they answer it with kindness and mercy. And their hearts are open and God uses them in it. It's the women who turn this story and show resilience and strategic brilliance as they undermine him at every single point. So it begins with the midwives who outsmart him. 
and stand with courage to make sure that the children can continue to live. And then it goes into Moses' mother who hides her baby from him to keep him safe for three months. And then it says that that Moses' mother takes her baby when she knows she can no longer hide him. She places him in trust in God's hand. She builds this little basket for him out of reeds and she places him in it and she places the basket in the Nile and she sends him floating down the Nile River. What's interesting to me is that that word basket that's used in the story at this point, this is in chapter 2, that the word basket, the Hebrew word that's used there, is only used one other time throughout the Old Testament and it's the same word that's used to describe the ark that Noah builds. The ark of rescue. And so she places this little baby in this ark of rescue and sends him down the Nile River. So Moses' mother showing her brilliance and courage and resilience in that. And then it's Pharaoh's own daughter who hears the baby crying in the basket in the Nile and goes and, and brings the baby and her heart is moved in compassion in the exact opposite, countering her father's oppression. And in tenderness, she says, we need to save this baby And it's Moses' sister who's been following the baby along and keeping a close eye on him who sees this happen and steps up and says, if you would like, I know a, uh, a Hebrew mother who could nurse him for you. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, that would be excellent. Please do that. And so Moses' sister takes Moses back to Moses' mother who nurses him. And then he's taken back to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's own house. Love overcomes fear. And Pharaoh, who is moving in what he thinks is the strategic oppression, God is completely undermining it. And love is overcoming fear. And love is driving out fear. And Pharaoh eventually raises in his own household the very person that he was most afraid of, the very person who will defeat him and who will deliver the Hebrew slaves and lead them into God's freedom. Love turned a story on its head and overcame oppression and it's still doing that today. And it's still doing that today. And that's how oppression is defeated today. And that's how oppression is overturned today. It's through empathy and it's through love. Acts of courageous love. Brave love. I love it. The beautiful thing about this story, as intriguing as it is, The most beautiful thing about this story is not just the story that it's telling here, but the story that it's foreshadowing for us. As it's pointing ahead to another time in history when another oppressive regime will come into power and will brutally oppress the Jewish people. And fear-filled leaders will once again try to murder an entire generation of young children. Why? Simply so they can retain power. Because they're afraid of someone taking their spot. And another brave mother, in the midst of that, gives birth to another unassuming baby boy that will have to go into hiding. And then will grow up to become the deliverer of his people out of slavery. It's telling us the story of Jesus. And as we're reading it, Jesus is emerging off of the page and he's speaking directly to us. And he's telling us how he has overcome 
And he's telling us that the enemy who tried to use fear and oppression to get his way was defeated by that fear and that oppression. And Satan, who rejoices in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, doesn't realize what he has done. Doesn't realize that he has handed himself to defeat. And that God all along was strategically moving in order to bring us victory. And what looked like defeat for Jesus is our ultimate victory as the Jesus who died on the cross emerges in resurrection power from the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. That story is still happening in the world today and you and I are a part of it. And it's perfect love that continues to drive out fear and continues to break the power of oppression in this world and in your life. That's real. And that's our story. Today we seal this with the act of sharing in communion together. Communion which is bringing together the Old Testament and the New Testament stories of this delivery from slavery of Jesus Christ. This baby boy who grows up to become the deliverer for us. Jesus on his last night with his disciples took the bread that was at the table and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for the healing of the world. And he takes the cup. And he says, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. In the shedding of my blood, it looked as if the enemy had won. But it was the shedding of that blood that wins the victory for us. As he covers our sin and he breaks the power of sin in our lives. We celebrate that today. Today, some of you need to embrace that for the very first time. And if that's you today, then I encourage you to come and to participate in communion as an act of embracing what Jesus Christ has done for you. As a symbolic participation here. And saying, I am embracing and accepting what Jesus Christ has done for me. And even though the enemy has tried to use fear in my life and oppression in my life to keep me in bondage, Jesus Christ paid the price to set me free. And I want that. And if that's you today, we invite you to come forward and participate in communion. And for you, that's a celebration act today. For all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ and who have been transformed by his grace, who've been rescued by his love, we invite you to come to the table today and to celebrate what Jesus, the great deliverer, has done for us. There'll be a station on either side today, and if you need a gluten-free option, that will be available for you on this side. As you come forward, take off, take off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.